Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, your host for today's episode of New Books in American Studies. Today I'll be joined by Andrew Needham, Associate Professor of History at New York University. We'll be speaking about his not entirely new, but still very exceptional book called Power Lines, Phoenix and the Making of the Modern Southwest. It was published by Princeton University Press in hardcover in 2014 and in paperback in 2016. Power Lines tells a complicated but important story about the politics of energy systems. Needham looks at the making of the Southwest in the 20th century, focusing especially on the vast and complex infrastructure that linked urban spaces to the hinterlands. He shows that the rapid development of Phoenix and other Southwest cities depended on massive quantities of cheap energy, and that energy, primarily coal, came from and polluted Navajo lands. Stories about infrastructure are sometimes hard to read. Needham, however, skillfully tells a dramatic story that should help us rethink spatial relationships, the inequalities of our energy systems, and modernity. The book brings together many different fields and would therefore be of interest to a broad audience, including environmental historians, political historians, Native American historians, and urban historians. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Andrew Needham about his fascinating new book called Power Lines. Thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me, Andrew. My pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book, uh, as I've already told you uh, when we were offline, uh, and I've been really looking forward to talking to you about it. As you probably know, on this show, we'd like to begin with a pretty broad question about how you became a scholar. How did you become a historian? Um, So I uh, really became an environmental historian in the years in between kind of finishing my undergraduate degree and um, and uh, starting graduate school. So I moved to San Francisco after I finished my undergraduate degree with not a real clear idea of what I wanted to uh, what I wanted to do. And I ended up working at a place called um, uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, uh, which is most famous for producing <laughs> in 1970, the Whole Earth, or 69, the Whole Earth Catalog, this kind of journal of tools and tools and ideas. Uh, and in uh, uh, when I was there in the mid-90s, they were producing what they called the Millennium Whole Earth Catalog, which was an update uh, of the catalog for the year, you, you know, meant for the year 2000, they're doing it kind of in the, in the mid nineties. Um, and so in, uh, one of the jobs I had there was, um, was assigning book reviews and we would get an eclectic mix of, you know, of books that kind of straddle the line between kind of scholarship and journalism. And, um, the book that came in that was most influential on me was uh, Rebecca Solnit's book, Savage Wars, which kind of tells the story of kind of the remaking of landscapes across the American West, uh, focusing on Yosemite in the 19th century and the atomic test sites in Nevada in the, um, in the mid 20th century. And kind of reading it, this was a kind of history. I was a history um, major as an undergrad, but this was a kind of history that I had never really um, even considered the way that human action and human interest transformed landscape um, in you know in really powerful and unequal ways because one of the subtexts of that book is the way that indigenous people uh, and their land claims are really subordinated to the interests of dominant societies for wilderness for nuclear testing for for other things um, and so you know going from you know one when i started graduate school kind of those that set of interests was really kind of embedded in me as you know as one of the the real core questions i wanted to ask and i think you know a lot of it was you know experiencing the american west in my you know in in my mid twenties, um, and you know, and seeing it as a you know as a very different landscape, which is a very kind of stereotypical kind of you know uh, you know Western Western story. The naive the naive uh, the naive person from the Midwest goes to the West and is shocked by you know by the difference that he 
either he, it's usually a he, <laughs> uh, confronts. Um, but, you know, it, you know, despite the, despite the kind of, you know, the stereotypical nature of that uh, story, it, you know, it really was uh, kind of deeply influential in the kind of historical questions that I, um, that I found myself asking kind of throughout my career. Like, how did this, you know, how did this place come to be used and developed in this way? How has it changed environments and who has benefited and who is, uh, um, and who has not benefited uh, from, from those changes? Um, great. So how did you come to this specific project, uh, this project about the Southwest and Phoenix, Arizona in particular? There's really kind of two stories uh, there. One is one is a um, you know story of you know driving past Four Corners Power Plant um, and kind of seeing its plume for kind of miles and miles and miles uh, when I was uh, you know when I was on my way to to go to the San Juan Mountains and seeing that plume and being kind of shocked and appalled that you know what is this. You know what is this? What is this thing doing here? Right, it did not seem to kind of match my ideas of the kind of um, the kind of economic life uh, or the kind of industry that belong kind of so far from uh, from urban spaces. Uh, and so that kind of you know that happened in this period that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so this was before I began graduate school, but that idea of like, what is this doing here, uh, stayed, um, stayed with me, you know, just as a kind of useful, productive question. And then in, when I was in my first year of graduate school at the university of Michigan, uh, I had to do a first year seminar paper, uh, and the graduate library there happened to have. I mean, I was interested in these questions that I kind of talked about before, landscape change and um, um, environment uh, in the American West. And um, so that had brought me to look at kind of tourism as one of the primary ways that kind of landscape, you know, change became an economic kind of, you know, that, that unique landscapes became a kind of an economic driver. The University of Michigan happened to have a eighty-year run of a magazine called Arizona Highways, which has this mm. <laughs> you know, very, you know, and and this is a very, you know, it's this is, you know, in the way that in a first-year seminar paper you're kind of grasping for whatever sources uh, you can find, uh, and so because there was this big run of the magazine that was a monthly magazine, I just I sat down and literally. I didn't read every article, but I, I did, I did, you know, enter every article into a database and kind of read through 80 years of this magazine and saw it go through this transition from, uh, in the late teens, early twenties, uh, you know, really promoting the idea of building roads in Arizona. We need roads in order that this state can become modern, um, to a shift in the mid thirties toward promoting the kind of unique qualities of uh of the state most prominent among them the state's native peoples which you know in the early part of the magazine are completely sidelined uh but then starting in the 30s come to feature this very prominent uh role as a you know as a counterpoint to modernity and what makes what makes Arizona unique and special uh so come to come to arizona the as the phrasing in the magazine almost uh always went you know come to arizona drive north uh and see people living as they lived you know 30 40 50 100 200 years ago driving into northern arizona is a way to drive into the past and so kind of that you know thinking about oh how does this power plant that is kind of sitting in the back of my mind fit into these stories of kind of temporal dislocation 
became the kind of germ of, uh, you know, of the book uh, itself. And then, you know, I went and, you know, began investigating the history of that power plant and literally followed its power lines back to, to Phoenix, which was the main um, uh, source of consumption for the electricity generated there. Uh, and so that really began to lead me to see connections between uh, kind of the native landscape of, uh, of northern Arizona, western New Mexico, uh, and, these, and this you know, exploding city uh, that grows from you know, across the second half of the 20th century, grows from about 100,000 people um, to uh, a couple million people. Wonderful. I, I feel like there could be a third story as well. Um, uh, so at the University of Michigan, your advisor was uh, Matthew Lasseter, correct? Actually, my, my actually my advisor was Maria Montoya. Really? Oh, okay. The, uh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, but I mean, there's a, a really big suburban um, uh, element to, to your story. And uh, I've recently uh, been going through Lily Geismer's um, book and then as yeah. well Connolly's book and uh, there just seems to be like a generation of scholars uh, coming out of the University of Michigan who are doing just really cool suburban histories. Yeah, no, that was you know that was one of these wonderful idiosyncratic moments, mm-hmm. right? Of that I happened to be at Michigan at you know as a moment at a moment when you know kind of because of Matt Lasseter, because of Jesse Hoffman Garskoff. Um, uh, because of uh, some other people, um, a bunch of graduate students really began to work around these questions of what are the you know what are the boundaries of the of the city in post-war America? What is what are the effects of suburbanization, metropolitanization? Um, and you know, Matt ran a couple of different seminars where he brought lot he brought kind of numerous uh, people in. Uh, to kind of, you know, to kind of run through projects, you know, at various stages in their, uh, in their development, either after their book is out or, you know, as they're working, as they're working on it. Um, so that gave me, you know, an opportunity to really not only read deeply in that literature, but to be in a group of, you know, people like, you know, like Lily, like Nathan, like Andrew Highsmith, um, uh, Clay Howard, who are all kind of working kind of, you know, in different ways kind of around, you know, around these, these issues. Um, and I always saw my project as, um, you know, from the time I was writing uh, updates to, well, here's what I, you know, here's what I accomplished this year uh, of bringing together uh, the ideas in Bill Kernan's Nature's Metropolis and, uh, um, about the kind of the broad reach of urban uh, economic life and um, Tom Segrew's origins of the urban crisis saying kind of here's the here's the way that kind of urban transformation produces inequality um, and so you know one of the one of the things that you know I was able to do thinking with these people was to think about well what's a what does the map of inequality look like if we broaden the borders of metropolitan life to include uh, its resource demands. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think that so bringing those questions of growth and inequality together with questions of um, basically how does a city, how, do, how does a modern city sustain itself, um, you know, led me to kind of these new, uh, you know, to a I think new map of inequality in post-war America, or at least in the Southwest. Great, you've anticipated my first question about the inside of your book, um, so uh, we'll we'll finally enter it now. Uh, so your book charts the uh, 20th century history of the Southwest and shows how energy systems involving dams, coal, electrical power lines. Um, uh, connected this region in deeply unequal ways. Um, so, you know, for instance, the cheap energy from uh, the Navajo lands fueled the rapid post-war development of metropolitan spaces like Phoenix. And so, as, as you've been uh, alluding to so far, um, geography plays a huge role in framing and, and advancing your argument. 
Um, so uh, you you write, and I think you actually just quoted it <laughs> in your last answer, uh, that your book constructs a broad new map of post-war urban environmental and political change. Uh, and so this regional approach um, that links both um, urban and suburban spaces with uh, the hinterlands sort of challenges some of the, the recent historiography on suburbs and the cities. Um, and so those works seem to cut off the, the suburbs from anything beyond it. And that almost uh, like reifies these older assumptions about how it was the city and like the, the, the metropole that was the engine of growth. Um, and it therefore conceals uh, some of the, the, the very real contributions um, to development um, from the, you know, the country. Um, so could you just elaborate on this regional approach and uh, maybe tell our listeners what is gained by using this much broader geographic framework? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, it's it, funnily one of the places it comes from is really, you know, if, if you think of, you know, what are, if you think geography, you think maps, right? And one of the places that the, that the, geography that I write about in this book comes from is really kind of archival discoveries of maps of power lines um, that, you know, progressively show kind of how deeply interconnected the Southwest's growing urban cities uh, and its hinterlands become, you know, from really the, you know, from really the, the, Starting in the in the fifties, but really it's starting to really take off in the in the sixties and seventies. So uh, the maps that I found initially showed kind of direct connections between power plants on um, you know the initially direct connections between local power plants and local consumers. So power plants located you know in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Um, then. Um, starting around 1961, new connections between Phoenix uh, and Four Corners Power Plant, located uh, uh, near the Four Corners, uh, about you know 40 miles south of the actual Four Corners. Um, but then, in um, doing research in the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, I found a report in 1970. Uh, from the Department of Energy that has this amazing schematic power map that shows um, a series of power plants, uh, four power plants that really ring the Navajo Nation um, uh, and cities throughout the Southwest. So, you know, with that map, with the interconnection of multiple power plants and multiple cities, um, and this is not also, it's not only Phoenix, but also Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Albuquerque, Salt Lake City. You know, there's on the corner of the map it says to Denver. Um, so you, there's this picture of this, you know, increasingly dense connection between the energy supplies of uh, coal located um, uh, on native land uh, and urban and suburban consumers located hundreds of miles away. And I think, you know, the merits of this approach, you know, really allow um, us to understand, as, as you suggested, the ways that um, the cities and city and suburban borders, as we normally consider them, um, in a way, hide the broad effects, uh, the broad transformative effects that contemporary uh, urban and suburban life have had on kind of landscapes far away. And I mean, this is, a, you know, I think this is a history that if you were to take it to a national scale, you could include uh, thing, you know, stories like the creation of water supplies, uh, New York's water supplies in uh, first Westchester County and then the Catskills. Um, um, it could be used uh, uh, to think about urban waste disposal and where kind of urban waste goes. So these kind of cascading effects that are both kind of environmental and political that, um, that urban resource demands uh, really, really have take stories of inequality away from what Robert Self called this classic story, right? Of the, of black inner city surrounded by a white suburban noose um, 
um, and you know remap inequality to um, to kind of show another kind of layer beyond uh, beyond suburbs um, uh, that are kind of you know where kind of unequal relations that are both political and ecological um, uh, become put in place. One thing that your book does really well is uh, provide like a coherent narrative for infrastructure, um, which is uh, a subject that is like a really hard thing to do, uh, you know, because of its vastness, its complexity, um, and uh, when it's functioning, um, its invisibility. Um, so uh, these are problems that I face in my own uh, research and writing. And so I was wondering if you could just say something about the task of infrastructure history um, and uh, how exactly you tackle it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I mean, I think that you're right that infrastructure is is invisible in its experience. But one of the actual great things about studying infrastructure as a historian is that there is clear physical evidence of its, you know, of its presence in many, in many ways. I mean, the, one of the things I do early on in the book is kind of basically kind of narrate a power lines uh, reach from Phoenix up to, uh, up to Four Corners power plant. And the way I was actually able to do that was uh, using Google Earth um, and zoomed in to, zoomed in fairly, you know, fairly close, was able to actually follow, you know, one of these extra high voltage power lines as it makes its way across um, Arizona's, Arizona's landscape. So while, you know, the, the consumption of electricity becomes, I mean, in many ways, uh, uh, second nature in, uh, uh, in Phoenix, in the wonderful dual meaning that Bill Cronin's use of second nature uh, has um, the actual physical presence of of infrastructure allows um, you know, and the understanding that this infrastructure is built at a particular moment for a particular uh, uh, set of interests um, allows historians to you know to really bring kind of time and space together. Um, in you know in a profound way to kind of escape that old kind of you know accusation that historians write as if history took place on the head of a pin um while also kind of getting away from the you know the geographer's you know you know sense of kind of timelessness um uh, so you know i think that infrastructure in its you know in its both its invisibility and its visibility is this kind of wonderful tool uh, to think about how have um, how has political power worked, um, and you know this is my book obviously has kind of you know power has dual meanings, right? Power is uh, electricity and what it enables people to do in um, in kind of modern lives, but it also is, you know, power in the ability of uh, people in certain places to claim uh, use of resources from another place uh, for their own, for their own ends. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, So uh, that's actually really interesting that you use Google Earth to look at the power lines because, you know, like that's obviously like, you know, our infrastructure today um, that's like, you know, enabling you to monitor the infrastructure um, that was built in the past. <laughs> um, so that's really neat. And so uh, just another question to kind of set us up. Your book explores the history of a place that does not have the same familiarity as a place like say, New York uh, or Chicago. And so uh, could you just like set the scene for us? What was um, Phoenix, Arizona or Arizona more broadly like in like the 1920s and 30s? Um, And maybe um, you could introduce us to uh, some of the characters that um, are important to your narrative. Sure, sure. And I think it's, you know, I think there's, um, you know, there's two places. I mean, there's two prominent places in this book that are unfamiliar. Uh, um, to people, or maybe whose familiarity is, uh, you know, exists as uh, 
as archetype rather than rather than reality, which is probably true of most places. But it's both Phoenix uh, and the Navajo Nation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Phoenix in the um, Phoenix in the at the beginning of the book is really a you know small agricultural city. Um, and it's strange to think of Phoenix as an agricultural city because we think of you know the, this you know city as a prominent kind of desert uh, desert city. But the story of you know Phoenix really in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century is the success of um, of hydraulic reclamation in transforming um, desert lands, which have over you know tens of thousands of years received, you know, seasonal flooding, which has displaced a lot of uh, really rich soil, uh, you know, into this giant basin of the Salt River Valley. Um, and applying water to that uh, really, you know, did um, allow as kind of irrigation evangelists in the early 20th century said, you know, made the desert bloom. Um, and Phoenix becomes uh, one of the nation's largest suppliers of of citrus, of vegetables, of cotton. Um, you know, in uh, in the first half of the twentieth century, um, uh, and Phoenix exists at the center of this larger agricultural landscape as a kind of um, you know marketing center. Um, and you know services, you know services center. There's all virtually no, um, there's virtually no manufacturing in in Phoenix. The largest manufacturer uh, is both the the two industries are agricultural canning, which makes sense, and broom manufacture. Hmm. Um, and that, that like broom manufacture is your big industry shows. I think the kind of the the way that you know this is not you know the you know by no means an industrial city. Um, at the same time, the Navajo Nation, um, uh, at this moment in time, um, not, the Navajo people really, I think, are, you know, in the late 19th century, one of the great kind of post-conquest success stories. I mean, it, that they're, you know, that they can be considered a success or I think suggests the devastations mm-hmm. of, of, you know, American colonialism. Um, but you know, the Navajo people see a kind of increase in population following the, um, following their return from forced exile in, uh, in New Mexico. It's actually the, um, the 150th anniversary this year of the signing of, uh, the signing of the treaty between the Navajo people and the U S government. Um, so in 19, in 1868, the, a very small number of, of Navajo people, 7,000 returned from their forced exile uh, at the Bosque Redondo. And over the, the next um, 50 to 60 years, see a kind of resurgence of both um, human population and animal population uh, as um, they, you know, really repopulate the, the, um, uh, the, Colorado Plateau, which sits in kind of northern northern Arizona, um, that uh, you know they dramatically kind of increase the territory of the reservation by ignoring government, you know, ignoring boundaries that are you know kind of abstract and set in place for no real reason, um, and you know come to claim much of much of uh, the northern part of. Uh, of the state in the western part of New Mexico, um, uh, beginning in the kind of teens, twenties, and thirties, extended drought, uh, um, and then a program of the uh, U.S. government to forcibly um, reduce Navajo stock herds devastates the Navajo economy. Uh, so, you know, at the time my book really starts, um, the Kind of Navajo people have seen um, both ecological disaster and a kind of almost a reconquest, uh, a re you know a reimposition of American colonial power over them in kind of you know removing their su- their subsistence base. Um, so you know it's a real moment of kind of profound kind of 
both economic shock and um, kind of spiritual, cultural trauma uh, for people who have seen um, uh, stock herds that they rely on for their lives, you know, killed in many cases, killed in front of them by uh, by uh, agents of the U.S. government. Okay, so uh, we're going to move on to uh, the 1940s and um, sort of like the post-World War II moment. Um, so um, like Phoenix itself, uh, its population grew, as you say, from 65,000 to 440,000 440, um, between 1940 and 1960. Um, and so it's undergoing tremendous change. Uh, they begin to market like the Chamber of Commerce begins to market it as the the Valley of the Sun, where you know residents could enjoy outdoor living. But aside from just being an ideal, this was also a political project launched by Phoenician elites. Um, can you briefly just say something about this political project, um, and then um, especially the significance of electricity to that project? Sure, that's it. Um, um, the I mean the people involved in this project. Um, um, so Phoenix grows like many cities in the West, beginning with World War II. They um, become a, it becomes a prominent place for uh, training aviators uh, where you can grow cotton, you can grow pilots is one of the, uh, one of the phrases people uh, use. And um, also it becomes a site because of the environmental conditions there, low humidity, um, um, in particular, becomes a place to manufacture uh, aeronautical component, aviation components. Um, and, you know, its proximity to Los Angeles allows a lot of, you know, kind of subcontractors to locate in Phoenix and then, you know, ship um, parts to L.A. Will the, will, there will, where they will be assembled into, uh, into military and then civilian uh, aircraft. Um, that growth begins to, um, um, as it continues after World War II, um, frightens people uh, in Phoenix, a kind of new generation of, of uh, elites that have kind of replaced a, what, what I describe as a downtown elite that includes, um, and most prominently, Barry Goldwater, uh, who, is, who uh, owns with his brother a local department store chain, um, but also a set of bankers, lawyers, um, who kind of together see a very different um, future for Phoenix than its agricultural, uh, its agricultural past. Um, what, and, and they, I think, you know, I'm not sure how, um, um, I think they consciously also see an opportunity of posing Phoenix as an alternative to um, they, they certainly see it consciously as an alternative to kind of Eastern industrial cities, um, but also as a space of kind of relief from the New Deal state. Um, in many ways, I think the fact that American industry in the early part of the 20th century grows in, in states means that those like New York, Illinois, Michigan, means that those states develop um, kind of large scale um, kind of social service networks, both at the state and uh, both at the state level uh, as well as the federal level. Um, Arizona, other states in the South don't develop that. And these boosters really see um, an opportunity uh, to um, present to capital um, a kind of relief from um, from you know labor from uh, from you know state uh, you know from state regulation from you know from tax burdens and they very aggressively both work at the state level to um, uh, remove uh, as many labor rights uh, and rights for union organizing as they can. Um, and, you know, work to um, create state policies that favor, uh, that favor labor. Um, 
and both state and local, including kind of tax abatements, uh, long-term leases offered to particular companies to incentivize them to relocate uh, to Phoenix. So I think in many ways, a lot of the economic program of what we think of as the contemporary new right um, really begins in places like uh, like Phoenix that seek to attract um, that seek to attract capital to them uh, using these uh, strategies that kind of work in opposition to the New Deal state uh, in you know beginning really in I think the late 1940s uh, and moving forward really aggressively into the you know into the 50s and 60s and seeing a lot of uh, a lot of success uh, in those years where that you know I think that the amount of income from manufacturing in Phoenix moves from kind of about five thousand uh, in five thousand sorry five million dollars annually um, in nineteen fifty to three hundred million wow. annually by nineteen sixty so a really dramatic increase. Yeah, we won't have time to go into it too much, but your book also shows just how indebted Phoenix was to the New Deal state, uh, especially in relation to the primary and secondary mortgage markets, which just basically enabled the development of Phoenix. Uh, and it was actually the the first time that I finally understood uh, why, like basically what, what were the <laughs> primary and secondary mortgage market and why they really mattered to suburbanization. But I will leave that to our listeners to look into your book. To, to read. <laughs> and that, I mean, that was really one of the fun stories. That was one of the like not fun stories, but that was really I think one of the the things that I also began to understand in the in the process of doing the research for the book and how tightly connected the you know these things we think of as abstract mm-hmm. like the secondary mortgage market were to particular people uh, in um, you know in this downtown in this new kind of community of downtown elites in Phoenix that they're really that they are really kind of working um very intimately to help create uh and profit off of a off of a, both of these mortgage markets yeah can you just say a little bit about electricity in uh the like the immediate post-war period uh and uh, sort of like as a as a function of um, you know attracting all these high tech businesses and industries um, and also like just the the massive um, population boom um, electricity demand uh, was increasing and then there were actually changes to the electrical network and the electrical utilities um, in Arizona. Sure. Yeah. No. That's I mean, I think that's a really that that's obviously a key kind of story that I that I tell. And I think, you know, in, in the broadest picture, you know, I think historians have not understood enough how kind of central energy is and, and the availability of uh, cheap ready energy is for creating kind of not only modern economic life, but the kind of the assumption of growth that the assumption that energy will be available. Um, and will be kind of inexpensive has been one of the major, um, you know, major assumptions uh, of a kind of growth economy as we've known it over the past, you know, over the past decade, over the past century, really. Um, so the, you know, when people think of the Southwest, they usually think about Hoover Dam um, and the various dams built on the Colorado River, um, and you know. Indeed, those are, you know, built, you know, in part to uh, supply electricity to um, to the Southwest. Uh, but very, very quickly after their construction, as early as 1952, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that builds dams, realizes that no matter how much hydropower they're able to, to build, and they're not able to build as much as they want, um, that demand for electricity will quickly outstrip um, uh, the supply that's available. Um, So they um, propose, uh, and Phoenix Utilities propose, kind of simultaneously, though not in concert, um, that that coal will need to be the new primary source of electric generation, uh, you know, for not only Phoenix, but for the West, uh, um, the West at large. Um, in 
you know, in 1950, coal produces a minuscule amount of electricity uh, in the West, um, something on the range of 5%. Uh, but as early as 1952, the Bureau of Reclamation is saying that, um, you know, by the year 1970, it will produce 40% uh, of the electric power. It actually ends up producing, um, you know, by 1980, around 65% of the region's power. So it's not only a story of kind of electrical generation, but where does, you know, what will the, what will the source of electricity, uh, what will the source of electricity be? Um, and the choice of coal um, uh, really directs both federal authorities and private utilities toward coal supplies located on native lands uh, starting in the 1950s. Yeah, and that that uh, brings us to one of my favorite chapters, um, chapter four, uh, called "Modernizing the Navajo." And so here um, you show uh, some of the story that you were just sharing with us about how coal on the Navajo reservation um, appeared to be a solution uh, to the inadequate supply of energy in metropolitan spaces in the Southwest, but then also um, to the economic problems that the Navajo were facing. Um, so, you know, you have uh, Phoenician business elites and then also, you know, um, different levels of government uh, uh, involving themselves. And all of them had different ideas about how the energy system should be built. And then the Navajo tribal leaders had their own vision for how or what that network should look like. Um, can you just tell us about the, the, the different conflicting visions for the use of energy resources uh, and how it eventually shaped the electrical network? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great that's a great question, and one of the one of the things that actually really surprised me as I as I uh, did the research uh, around the book. I mean that the you know I I'm Barry Goldwater says uh, writes a letter to uh, Arizona's governor Howard Pyle uh, just after he's elected to the Senate, uh, and says something to the effect of you know in mineral resources alone we have enough supply to solve all of our so-called Indian problems. Um, you know, with, and, you know, in part, this is a story of, you know, these, uh, kind of Phoenix elites saying that we need to kind of take back control of the resources of our state, you know, you know, from kind of federal authority. Um, and in doing so, we can create benefit, not only for Phoenix, we can not only produce, you know, the, the energy. Um, that our growth demands, um, but we can also benefit the native people uh, of the uh, of the state. Um, you know, in part, they see you know what this will require is uh, is you know removing um, uh, eliminating the federal trust responsibility for native people. So basically. Um, saying that kind of the federal government will no longer uh, have oversight such that Indian resources can then be brought into uh, the market at a much more rapid pace. This is a story that I think continues to be a, um, a key element of the rights understanding of, of, of kind of native underdevelopment, that, that Kind of federal authority prevents the market from working its magic and you know rapidly modernizing these uh, these uh, these economies um, for uh, native for Navajo leaders they're somewhat sympathetic to to this view I mean they have a long history of dealing in very contentious ways with uh, with the federal government and the federal government you know um, uh, underserving them systematically. Um, so the idea of having, you know, um, energy development on their land is a first step toward um, what they imagine as uh, industrial modernization seems appealing to tribal leaders as well. Um, so, um, you know, in a sense, these two groups find, um, you know, find um, shared interests in their opposition to federal power uh, coming from very different 
understandings of, you know, and, and very different realities of their, uh, you know, of the extent to which federal power uh, uh, hampers them. Um, but they kind of find a you know, shared agreement that, oh, for kind of Navajo leaders, building power plants will be the first step toward a process of a process leading toward industrial modernity. I mean, this is the heyday of modernization theory um, and the kind of ideas of what, you know, the, you know, what steps a people has to take in order to, uh, to achieve something called modernity, um, you know, are, you know, uh, you know, you know, are assumed to be a kind of linear, kind of linear stage of development process. Um, this, of course, quickly, uh, you know, proves false. Um, uh, you know, starting in, um, you know, starting by the mid '60s, kind of both Navajo leaders and local Navajo people are very much seeing the kind of negative effects of uh, energy development on their uh, on their lands, um, and um, you know, begin to you know, with, with seeing and seeing few of the benefits, seeing, you know, seeing a limited amount of industrial development, a few, uh, a few good jobs increase, you know, by the eighties and nineties, kind of more of the workforces of these mines and power plants become Navajo. Um, but in the, in the fifties and sixties, uh, they're, uh, they're not, but certainly not the kind of, you know, not the kind of economic um, you know, development that tribal leaders had hoped for, and at the same time, they're seeing really dire ecological uh, uh, effects, both health effects on on people uh, and kind of the destruction, uh, the damage of of local spaces um, that are you know um, uh, that are deeply important to people. Great, and this is um, this will all be aggravated by sort of the uh, the developments that happen on Navajo land after uh, the the hydroelectric dams in the Grand Canyon are um, scuttled, uh, and so in in the chapter chapter six called the Living River, you kind of lay out this uh, contentious fight over whether these dams were going to be built, and it became really a national, if not an international, issue. Uh, and you have like the Sierra Club and other environmentalist groups um, sort of like introducing a novel language of, uh, you know, rights to undeveloped nature. But uh, really tellingly, um, those rights to a pristine nature, uh, you know, namely tourist locations like the Grand Canyon, had the uh, the effect of revving up economic Develop or energy energy development and ecological damage in the Navajo lands. Um, can you say something about this moment and perhaps why energy development was so much more palatable in a place like the Navajo Reservation rather than the Grand Canyon? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things you see in this battle over kind of a proposal to build dams at either end of the Grand Canyon um, is you see environmental groups coming up. You know, I think for the first time with a really profound critique of suburban growth um, uh, in one of the, the Sierra Club pu publishes two really widely distributed and well-known picture books at, uh, at the time of Canyon landscapes um, that are meant to, you know, provide people with a sense of here's what, here's the loss, um, here's what's lost with the development of hydroelectric dams of flooding of these canyon landscapes. Um, and, you know, in one of these books, one of the authors writes something like, how much isn't, you know, essentially, how, how much is enough? Will Phoenix be a better place if it has 3 million people instead of 2 million people? Will Los Angeles be a better place if, you know, it has 15 million people instead of 10 million? Like, to what, you know, you know, what is the what is the end of this of this kind of growth if it ends up being so kind of profoundly destructive to um, places that are um, kind of majestic and special? Um, 
However, the Sierra Club, um, because of a set of, of commitments to protecting national parks, really kind of draws the border of that critique. I mean, that's, that's a very wide-ranging critique. The way they apply it politically, though, um, uh, is restricted to kind of the borders of Grand, Cash, Grand Canyon National Park. Um, and to the idea that the ecological life of the park, uh, with the Colorado River flowing through it at its heart, um, uh, is one of the things that, you know, that makes that place special. Um, they, you know, broadly kind of, they, they not only kind of ignore, um, nearby spaces, uh, on the Navajo Nation, but they they actively uh, in the book at least promote both coal development and atomic development as you know as answers to this uh, as solutions to the problem of well if we don't build these dams where will the energy come from David Brower who is you know in many ways the kind of one of the key um, one of the key founders of the contemporary environmental movement said, why are we, says essentially, why are we building dams when there's all of this nearby coal available and atomic energy is becoming so, um, you know, is becoming so widely used. So while they launch this critique of this critique of growth, they both spatially contain it into, um, into discrete landscapes that are, you know, important to kind of important in a national imagination and, to a kind of particularly to a particular set of kind of metropolitan elites. Um, and at the same time, they provide uh, or hold out kind of coal and atomic energy as alternatives. So while the, the critique of growth is launched, there's not a kind of corresponding critique of, of limiting kind of energy development as a way to, um, you know, as a way to, to limit growth in, you know, in some ways. Uh, later on, you know, to their to their credit, they do come uh, to see the uh, coal mines that are developed as uh, as environmental catastrophes um, um, and mobilize politically against them. But by the time they mobilize, those projects uh, are already underway with kind of capital invested in the construction of coal-fired power plants to use them. And I think one of the, you know, one of the, one of the lessons that I drew uh, in kind of research and writing the book is that, that, that when capital gets uh, located in place in the form of infrastructure, then the possibilities for political, then political change becomes much more, much more challenging. Yeah, that, it's it's kind of funny because that was uh, literally what I was about to ask you about. Um, uh, you actually write that, uh, you know, once the material aspects of the geography of power came into existence, resistance to development became much more difficult. So um, basically what I uh, take from that is that you're saying that, uh, you know, like that massive inequalities shaped the development of infrastructure and then the very like fixedness of infrastructure make those inequalities more permanent or as your, uh, you know, former University of Michigan colleague, uh, Nathan Connolly would say more concrete. Can, can you actually elaborate on this in reference to some of the um, like political debates uh, going on in the Navajo Nation in the 1970s? Um, you know, there were... Uh, mines or plants that were occupied by um, militant indigenous um, actors and uh, and and yet the 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 infrastructure the terms of the infrastructure um, were hard if not impossible to challenge yeah yeah and I think that they became hard you know impossible they became you know nothing's impossible mm -hmm. but they became very very challenging um, uh, to uh, impede both because of you know the fixity of infrastructure in place um, that, you know, that now kind of, you know, capital had taken physical form, right, in the form of power plants, drag shovels, coal mines, um, um, and that 
um, increasingly the Navajo Nation became, you know, dependent on the revenues, uh, you know, generated from these plants, both in terms of, you know, royalties on coal, which were, you know, you know, wildly unequal. The Navajo Nation received 25 cents per ton of coal that was that was sold, you know, uh, it was resold to a power plant for $3 a ton, uh, almost, you know, immediately upon its mining. Um, um, uh, so they're dramatically unequal revenues, and yet they become, you know, one of the largest, um, uh, you know, parts of the tribal treasury. Um, and I mean, this is, you know, this is how dependency works, right? Um, uh, an unequal system um, nevertheless becomes, uh, you know, becomes, people become deeply reliant on a deeply unequal system um, uh, that that both, you know, that both exploits them and becomes very difficult to escape. Um, so that, I mean, the, the, the conflicts that, in, in the 1970s, as kind of further development, um, as further development uh, is proposed, the, some some I think really telling conflicts erupt uh, on the on the Navajo Nation between tribal leaders who essentially say we need more energy development or, in order to be able to function like a state to have power. Um, um, and, you know, essentially say to people in local communities, look, you know, the people at Black Mesa have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. The people in, uh, you know, the people by Four Corners Power Plant have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. Now, you people living in Burnham, which is a small community in Western New Mexico, it's your turn to do your part. Um, uh, and the people in Burnham say, we know, <laughs> we know people <laughs> who live near Four Corners. We know people who live at, you know, Black Mesa. We know the sac we know what those sacrifices have meant. Um, and, you know, it's meant the destruction of places that are, you know, are deeply, you know, deeply important to them with very little benefit coming back, very little benefit that we can see that's come back to them. So these, you know, you know, conflicts erupt that have continued into the present day um, between um, the tribal government um, and, uh, and local activists who say that you know, the tribal government, you know, puts, you know, the, you know, puts itself uh, in front of the interests of of Navajo people, um, and so you know those kind you know those kinds of politics become uh, you know which uh, become a have become a continuing part of both kind of you know Navajo politics and Indian politics across uh, uh, the American West. I think it's no accident that the largest um, uh, the largest non uh, Lakota uh, presence at uh, at the Nodapple protests uh, were uh, were people from the Navajo Nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was uh, really taken aback by uh, some of your uh, your points about just how contentious or how like, how much the Navajo Nation uh, was debating you know, like, like resource management, um, you know, sovereignty, all these things and how like we shouldn't be surprised by, by that. Cause like they're the ones who uh, are not only producing um, the, the energy that, you know, like everyone else is uh, consuming, but they're also like bearing the brunt of the pollution. Um, and so they're like, their very positionality in the energy system um, like makes these, uh, you know, these debates a lot more real. So I was wondering if you could just just to sort of like sum up our conversation about this book. Um, I was wondering if you could say something about what your history of you know mid twentieth century electrical systems in the Southwest uh, can tell us about our you know contemporary ecological problems, uh, um, you know, ranging from climate change to the emptying of the oceans or things like that. Like, what what does your book tell us about 
our contemporary moment. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's a really, that's a, that's one of the questions that I've kind of, I've really puzzled with, like with, you know, the, the way that kind of in electricity as this kind of almost, you know, this component of our daily lives um, that exists you know, around, around us almost all the time. Now, I mean, you know, I, you know, I wake up from, because of electricity, most of, most days, um, you know, I use it constantly throughout the day without thinking. Um, um, I mean, without thinking necessarily where it's coming from. I mean, I've done enough work to, to know generally what the kind of conditions of my electricity are. Um, but that like, un the, the, the fact that here's this presence that has over the past, you know, 60 years, um, been one of the primary drivers of carbon intensification. Um, and that it's, it's most visible, um, distant from the people who use it most. Um, I think that's one of the profound developments infrastructural developments of the past 60 years. And it's one of the most troubling um, because it, the promotion of a kind of unknowing consumption that both has deepened kind of urban rural inequalities um, and has, you know, endangered the planet um, and, you know, and continues to, you know, it continues to endanger the planet and has, you know, has, you know, created patterns of kind of, of underdevelopment and dependency that means that people in coal producing regions have, you know, seemingly, uh, you know, seemingly few other options, economic options. Um, you know, this nexus of, you know, this nexus of kind of metropolitan expectation um, uh, and metropolitan ignorance, I think, is one of the the kind of major engines of you know of uh, of the kind of patterns of thought that go to kind of exacerbate um, that go to exacerbate climate change. I think you know one of the things that's most hopeful um, is the way that kind of indigenous activists you know, in the past decade have really kind of arisen to make the, to make the costs of, you know, energy, both on a local level and on a global level, you know, increasingly, you know, increasingly visible on the ability to demand for them to demand uh, notice through, you know, through protest actions, through political organizing um, and, you know, through the way that they are at least in part able to kind of, you know, insist that those stories become present on a national, uh, on a national level. Great. Well, I think that's uh, a, a good place to leave the book. Um, on this show, we always ask our guests what they're working on right now. Yeah, I'm working on a, I'm working right now. I'm working on a history of, of, uh, native New York in the first half of the uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, that's uh, uh, part of a broader project that I'm I'm kind of working on uh, about um, kind of thinking about the indigenous place in uh, in America in North American urban life. Uh, you know across the across the broad sweep. So I'm co-editing uh, of some I'm. I'm organizing a symposium and co-editing a volume uh, that will begin next year. That um, uh, that's tentatively called uh, "Indian Cities: Histories of Indigenous Urbanism." Um, that look at the kind of the central role that Native peoples have played, um, both in uh, in both in as urban actors and as uh, as subjects of urbanization. Um, and so the the New York uh, the New York part of the story looks both at um, the place of Native people in um, 
in kind of the cultural life of New York and in the material life in the in the building of uh, the built environment of the uh, of the city, the kind of modern, you know, what we think of as the modern skyline of New York is built in large part uh, by um, by steel workers uh, from Aquasasne steel workers uh, who uh, whose homelands are, are along the U.S. Canadian border. Um, so I'm I'm it it's a kind of native history of New York City uh, at the moment of its kind of emergence as the capital of the modern world. Hmm. Well, I'll really look forward to that. Uh, thanks again for speaking to me and uh, thank you uh, to all of our listeners. Thank you for the, thank you for talking to me. <laughs>